What's good, everybody? You're listening to a brand new episode of Leveling Up with Benjamin Banks with me, your host, Benjamin Banks, and my co-host, Trav and Rebellious D. And this is the two-year anniversary episode of Leveling Up with Benjamin Banks, and I am so happy that we made it to two years. Even though some people didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't. I thought we were going to be done by 30 episodes. Yep. Congratulations, fellas. I'm glad I could be here for this. And you were wrong. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad that you're here too, man. Like I'm glad that you know we brought you onto the team this year, man. And since we brought you on, it's like we've been having uh, you know really good episodes and really good chemistry amongst the three of us. So you know I'm happy that you're part of the team, D. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, well, so for today's episode. You know, we have a legend up here, you know, somebody who we all grew up listening to, somebody who, you know, it's like his voice when it just came to narration and, you know, doing voiceover work in anime. It's like we come to love and like that is the man himself, Mr. Bo Billingsley, who was gracious enough to come and join us on our two year anniversary episode. So let's go ahead and give him a call and do this episode. But before we give him a call, let's have a word from our sponsors. That's going to be Golden Ink Tattoo, Portsmouth, Virginia, 3109 Airline Boulevard, phone number 757-465-1010. If you give them a call and mention Leveling Up Banks, you'll get 10% off. Just ask to speak with Miss Denise and one of her team members, and they'll be happy to help you. That's right. You looking for a tattoo? Get it at Golden Ink Tattoo. And with that being said, let's give Mr. Billingsley a call and let's go ahead and get into this episode. Hey, how you doing, Mr. Billingsley? Thank you again for joining us on today's episode of Leveling Up with Benjamin Banks for our two-year anniversary. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm doing great, and it's uh, an honor to be here on your anniversary episode. Yeah, man. It's like I was telling these guys... When we first started leveling up with Benjamin Banks, our second episode was about Cowboy Bebop. And like now for our anniversary episode, it's kind of like it uh, it's come full circle now that we have a legend like yourself up here. You know, you play Jet on Cowboy Bebop. It's an anime that we loved growing up and we still love to this day. So we definitely appreciate you coming on and being the guest of our two year anniversary. Well, yeah, as I say, it's it's my pleasure. And uh I, I appreciate you guys. I really do. So, like, how are you holding up uh, with everything that's going on in the world right now? And how are you and your family doing? Well, personally, we're doing okay. You know, we've, we've lost some um, some relatives and um, to the virus um, who weren't close relatives. They were distant cousins. But, um, yeah, it's the whole situation is, is sad. And, you know, being with my, the way we think about things, our personal situation is 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 okay, but uh, there, it's just it's just painful to see how many people are are in pain around the country and around the world who are suffering. You know, it's it's really it's really hard. I go to sleep thinking about it. Go to wake up in the morning thinking about it. But I know I'm not I'm not unique that way. Um, so you know you 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 find a way to get through it as best as best you can. But uh, the loss of the loss of life is heartbreaking. You know, because there's so many, so many people I think we lost that we didn't have to if we had handled this thing right, you know, correctly from the beginning. But um, we have to move forward and do what we can do. But 
you know, listening, watching and hearing people's stories about their loss of loved ones and the way that they 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 passed is uh, is just heartbreaking, you know. And I know you guys feel the feel the same way, but you know, you for your own mental health, you got to got to try to move on and not absorb too much of it. So I I, I try not to watch too much news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it brings you down so far. Periodically, I kind of put my head in the sand, and and because it it wears on me, you know. So, um, but you know, it's it's as I say, it's it's my situation is fine, and I just ache for so many people. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, my condolences, and I'm sorry for yeah. your loss, because it's like I totally understand with everything that's going on in the world right now, and this is a serious matter that you know people need to take serious. Like, it's not a joke. It's not a What's the word that they say? Um, it's not a hoax. It's a hoax. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. Like, yes, yeah, a hoax and all this stuff. Like, this is legit. And, you know, I've had family members that have had it as well. And, you know, like I can, you know, just be thankful and blessed that it's like, you know, that they were able to heal from it. So it's like, I agree. Like people, they do need to take it serious. And the world just needs to come together so that way we can all be a better place. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's like... Uh, uh, Rodney King said years ago, can't we all just get along? But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a it's a it's a rough world. It's a rough world. And it's it's one of the great sadnesses is that there are so many people in our country who um, I'm just an, amazed at the numbers of people yeah. in our country who are. Right, let's just be kind to say they're thinking the wrong way. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's hard. It's actually made me a little bit paranoid. You know, oh, no, I I totally understand that, man. I totally understand. that. I mean, like just, uh, you know, even going out of the house, man, it's like you just never know when something might happen to you, you know, especially, you know, with everything that's happened this year with, uh, you know, like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and stuff like that. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery, like I'm, I'm somebody, you know, like I take exercising serious and, you know, working out, jogging around the neighborhood. And it's like when the stuff happened with Ahmaud Arbery, it's like mm-hmm. it made me think. It's just like, man, I could be out here jogging one day and somebody could see me and think that I'm a threat. And like it shouldn't be like that. You know what I'm saying? It's like we yeah. should be able to you know, live our lives and do what we want to do while feeling safe. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a real sadness that I mean, people of color have been. Uh, and rightly so, paranoid, you know, forever. Because yeah. you never know when something's going to happen. But, you know, with the white privilege, we don't, we can't relax that way. You know, we always have to be kind of like wary of people looking over our shoulder and wondering, you know, th- oh, wait a minute, this situation looks like it's not going the right way and whatever. So, uh, you know, when I go to the conventions, which I haven't been to, you know, this year, but when I go to the conventions in certain parts of the country, I, I just... I, be, you know, I'm I'm careful to have a lot of people around me, and 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 to uh, if I sightsee or whatever, I make sure I don't go anyplace alone, because um, you never know, as you said. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, a great sadness because it seemed like we were making good progress, and then all of a sudden this this hit, yeah, and it, it seemed like our, our country was set back. But at least I guess one positive aspect is that we we found out what's going on. That, you know, there's some 70, 75 million people that I have to be careful of, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, no, I, 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 I worry for my grandchildren, you know, 
what kind of world they're going to be in. I had two granddaughters and a grandson. And um, I, I, it just, you know, there's plenty to worry about. <laughs> so, I, to worry about. That's for sure. No shortage sure. of stuff to worry about, you know. But thank I, goodness we have anime and video games that we can escape, <laughs> you know. We can escape. Yeah, right. Know, our minds will break for a half a minute, you know. Well, I didn't want to, I don't want to keep revolving around, you know, this particular topic, but we actually... um podcasting on uh, Lovecraft Country, and I don't know if you saw it, but it seemed like it was the show that we needed to see during all this crazy stuff going oh, on. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but yeah, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet, face reality and deal with it, and then, but you do also have to find some ways to escape, because, I mean, you, you'll uh, overload your, 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 your emotions and your nervous system. Because uh, so there's so many sad, sad stories going on, and you know, seeing people, uh, our, our frontline workers, in tears, trying to explain what's going on, and it's not even their family members. You know, I mean, it's like a, such a sadness, and to have such a large swath of our country not even acknowledging it, right? And you know, and this whole nonsense about not wearing masks. I mean. I, I, I just I just don't get it. It's just hard for me to understand how so many people don't care about other people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was actually um, I couldn't believe it. But, you know, I'm I'm partially a, a frontline worker myself. Uh, and I was out on my route the other day and there was actually a guy who came into the store not wearing a mask. And it was just the weirdest thing at this stage in it and knowing what we've lost already. You know, there's still people willing to not wear them. It's, yeah, it was kind of mind blowing. You in a, in a at a in a business where you got you got the public coming in constantly, right? So yep. you're interacting with the public constantly, and these but and, and these people coming in without masks, they they just have to put themselves in your shoes for a half a second, and they should yep. and they would put on a mask. But for some reason, these people have no empathy, mm-hmm. and they don't care about anybody but themselves. And and I hate to say it, but it seems like that's one of the big differences between the right and the left in our country that. People on the left, we care about others, and it's not just it's not just ourselves. And the, the people on the right, you know, the people who don't want to wear the mask. They're just thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the people who are. And, and we're lucky to have restaurants and, and services going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you think that they would cooperate as much as possible to try to keep the, the frontline people safe. Yep. Yeah. Know? Yep. And um, and even if someone a frontline worker is, whether it's a restaurant or wherever it is. Even if you don't catch the virus, I know you're paranoid about it, and, and exactly. you're just hurry, worrying at the end of a day's work. Is I hope I didn't get it, you know, I hope yep. I didn't get it. And so, and then you have people waltzing in without a mask and want to fight about it. Yeah, you know? yep. it was mind. It was actually mind blowing. I mean, it was it was literally the day before yesterday. And, you know, I was just at a convenience store picking up some stuff, and then comes right in like nothing happened, like nothing's oh. going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yep. All right, so moving along, let's tell everybody, because we know who you are, but for everybody that doesn't know who you are, tell everybody, like, what is your origin story? Like, who was Bo Billingsley before we came to love him for the great actor that he is? Oh, thank you for your kind words. Uh, <laughs> well, I um, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. Where are you guys, by the way? Virginia. 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 Yep. All right. Um yeah, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and then um, my father was in the service in, in, in the Army. 
And that's how my mom, mom and dad met, met in Charleston. My father's from Georgia. My mother's from South Carolina. And then, but I, I grew up in Connecticut. We lived in Camden, New Jersey for a, a, a minute across the river from Philly. And, uh, but I grew up in Connecticut. Um, I, had a, I had a wonderful childhood. You know, my parents were forward thinkers. Um, so, you know, there was no physical discipline in our house. And get this one, no yelling. I mean, I, not only did my parents not hit me, they didn't even yell at me. You know, if I messed up, my father would say, come over. He'd get this real soft talk. Whenever he started talking really soft, i say, okay, I'm in trouble now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, I, you know, I would be punished. I would be punished, but no, there was no hitting. And um, it, was, it was funny. I remember there was one time I, 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 I did something I wasn't supposed to do. It was a bunch of us. Uh, about five of the kids that I would hang out, hang out with when I was a young fellow. I had a, a collie dog look like Lassie, and I yeah. named him I named him Bullet after Roy Rogers' dog. I don't know if you guys heard of those guys, Roy Rogers, but I I, I named him Bullet, and it was a little collie dog, and it was it was like a movie. Wherever I went, he went right, <laughs> and it was like it was four of us uh, kids. We roamed the woods and you know just make forts, and I'd have a I'd have a um, a slingshot in my back pocket that I made, and um, and I have a hatchet, you know, a little hatchet going through my belt, and we roam the woods and make forts, and you know, and that was that was <laughs> that was my childhood, and um, and I started playing sports early, and that's how my my self identification evolved into that of an athlete, you know, and uh, but I was a pretty good student, so anyway. Um, yeah, I, I as I say, I identified as an athlete when I was in high school. My senior, I was offered a contract to play professional foot baseball with. Uh, it was then the Kansas City Athletics. Now it's the Oakland A's. Yep. But but they were the Kansas City Athletics at that time, and I remember they offered me, and and I was seventeen years old, and I was whoa, eighteen grand. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's some money. Yeah. And, uh, wow. <laughs> so, so my dad said, "Okay, well, let's sit down. Let's talk about this." And uh, and that's the way my dad was. So he said, so let's assume you signed a contract. You're playing professional baseball. You're playing in the B or C league down there in Texas on some dirt fields with no fans in the stands. And and uh, and then you, let's say you don't make it for some reason. What do you got? And I said, well, um, nothing. He says, so on the other hand, you know, you you have a you have a scholarship to go to play football in college. Um, you can uh, you you let's say you let's say you go to college and maybe they'll let you maybe you can play um, baseball in college, but you get your education and uh, then maybe you can sign a contract. But at least if you get, if you sign a contract then and it doesn't work out, you have an education. He said, but it's your decision. <laughs> so he put it like that. So I said, well, I'm going to go to college, and he said, good thinking, good thinking. And but that was the way he was. He would talk to me and bring me around to the right decision on things. You know, he didn't dictate to me. Right. And, um, and so that's what I did. I went to college on a football scholarship and, um, as fate would have it, I was captain of the football team, my college football team. And I had letters for the NFL draft and, uh, but, but I was in ROTC. So I had to, and that's the reserve officers training corps. And uh, back in those days at University of Connecticut, all the men who went to went to college had to take two years of ROTC. You know, Vietnam was raging. And so and um, so my father told me, he said, you know, you're probably going to have to go in the, in the service. So 
um, with your personality, if you don't become an officer, you're going to end up in the stockade. Because <laughs> I guess apparently I didn't like being told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I did, and, and, I, and I continued on with that. So when I graduated from college, I was commissioned a second lieutenant. And then, uh, but I didn't even turn, return the letters from the NFL. Uh, you know, I, I still have them. Um, they send you packets to convince you to, that they're, they're called like the New York G, uh, football jets or the Cleveland football Brown, Cleveland Browns football club. And they would send you a packet with a, like a little, um, with uh, a questionnaire you fill out for your times and all of that. And you're, and you're in forties and sixty, And then, um, they would send you a pamphlet, your life with the jets and explain how your life would be. Right. And they also have a pamphlet, your wife's life with the Jets. Right. So, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so they want to convince you to come play with the Jets or the Cleveland Browns or whatever. And uh, but, you know, I, I didn't turn in because I, I knew I had to go to the military or go to go to graduate school. So I decided I went to law school. And uh, so the Army gave me a delay of three days before going on active duty. So I went to law school and. That's when I, my third year of law school, that's when I started acting. I started going down to New York and, um, and, and, you know, and I had no training or anything. But one, one of the things that really bit me was w- when I was in college, as I said, I was captain of the football team. And one of my fraternity brothers was directing a play called Emperor Jones by Eugene O'Neill. And it's, it, the setup is that he's an emperor of a Caribbean island. And he's losing his mind, and he's being chased chased by these ghosts, you know, in his mind. And he had a, a gun with a silver bullet to kill the ghosts and all of that. And so he was saying that um, he, he thought it would be cool if the captain of the football team did a play. And because they, at that time, the campus was really divided because of Vietnam. You know, the theater arts people and the fine arts people um, would, would pick at our, our ROTC drills, you know, when we were walking around with a rifle and all that and yell name, call us names, and we would call them names. And, and so, it was, you know, it was, it was a really heady time because of Vietnam, because everybody is some, had some connection to Vietnam, whether a friend had died there or a relative or whatever. And um, so anyway, um, I did it. And uh, I remember when I told a couple of my teammates, I'm going to do a play. He said, oh, Bo is doing a play. Mm. I said, no, no, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> don't go there. So um, anyway, and it actually had that effect. You know, like they, 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 my, my teammates came and people in theater arts and fine arts came. And, and intermission, they'd be mingling and talking. And, and it actually did have that effect, we felt, that it, it tended to calm down the, the factions on campus who were, you know, calling, arguing and fighting and scrapping and carrying on. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I went on to, um, uh, that experience was really wonderful. So I went on to law school and my third year of law school, I was thinking, you know what, let me try, I think I might want to try this acting thing. Right. <laughs> so, but also I have to add this in, um, my, my third year of law school, you know, now I've been in college for seven years. Right. So my third year of law school, I was, I was asked to, to play semi-pro football for this little semi-pro team that was in my town. They figured I would put people in the stands you know a local uh local athlete coming back home yeah and so i did that in the in, in the in the fall of what 68 i guess and yeah and um uh the head new england scout for the houston oilers who is mm-hmm. over now they're in texas mm-hmm. uh, uh saw me and then so they scheduled this tryout for me a special tryout saturday morning the press was there my father filmed it and um, it was funny. So he had me, I was playing quarterback. So he had me throwing passes and blah, blah. And so we're in the locker room 
And uh, he's asking me, and come to find out, he knew my medical history from the time I was in, in Pop Warner. When I was 11 years old, I broke my ankle playing Pop Warner football. He knew about that. He knew about all of my medical history. I had knee surgery in, in high school. And, and then he said, you, you could have gone pro out of college, but you weren't interested. But now you're interested. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and he didn't, you know, I didn't say anything about the fact that when I got out of law school, I had to go, I had to go in the army. But uh, yeah. I figured maybe I can squeeze one year in the NFL. I just, <laughs> I yeah. just wanted to squeeze in one year in the NFL. And um, so he said, okay, I want to bring you down to Houston. Let the big boys look at you. And he said, I'll be in touch. And then, and then he found out I had to go to the military and I was not available. <laughs> the army yeah. takes priority, right? Right. So, yeah, yep. uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. You can't say, uh, oh, I changed my mind. So, um, well, although I, I tried that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so um, anyway, that was, that was my, um, uh, my third year in law school. And then after that, that's when I decided I'm going to try this acting thing. And luckily, our next-door neighbor had a friend who was in New York. He was a, a director and a cameraman for commercials. So I contacted him, and he said, yeah, come on down. Tony Cirillo, he was gay. He said, come on down. Now's a good time. And so I went down. He was filming a, a Van Heusen shirt commercial. So I just watched and observed. And, uh, and then he told me what to do. I had to, get, I had to get photos. I had to get an answering service. Uh, and I had to join the unions. And, uh, and he told me how to do that. And that, at that time, you could just walk in off the street and join AFTRA, you know, American Federation of Television Radio Artists. And, and once you had a, a, a primary union like Equity or AFTRA, then you can join SAG. So that's what I did. I, I paid my money, my 220 bucks, went down to SAG, I think it was in Madison Avenue in the city, and um, uh, paid my 110 because it was half price for SAG at that time if you had a parent, parent union, as they call it. Joined SAG and and um, got this magazine, uh, this newspaper called Backstage, where you could dig up auditions. And I started. And it yeah. was interesting because it was one of those things like, you know, I had never I had never studied acting. And I'd only acted in one play. But I was figuring, hey, it's acting. How hard can it be? Right? <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. But, but that comes from having uh, maybe a, an overabundance of self-esteem. So... Uh, I said, yeah, I, I, I'm good at everything I do. So, you know, I went to New York and I was, I was lucky. I was, you know, I, I, I had some, uh, I had success there. And, um, and then I went to the military and did plays in the military. And here's a little side story. I was on orders to go to Vietnam. Yeah. And, um, I was supposed to be an advisor out in the village and the, the expected life expectancy of an advisor was about 30 days. They killed the advisors off and they put another one in there. Right. But it wasn't so much that. It was that Martin Luther King was saying that uh, th those those people didn't do anything to us. We don't have freedom in Georgia and South Carolina. Why are we going over there killing those people for their freedom, right, to try to get their freedom? So anyway, um, I when I got the orders to go to Vietnam, I said, I'm, OK, I'm, I talked with my dad about it, you know, and he said, well, as long as you're prepared to pay the consequences, you know, because guys were going to Canada and all that. And I said, well. I'm prepared. You know, I was ready to go to the stockade, but I said, but I don't believe in this war. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go. And they said, oh, okay, fine. We have a, we have a, a program. They call it voluntary indefinite. If you give us an extra year, we'll send you to Germany. I said, what? Is it that easy? They said, yeah, that's all. Yeah. You know? And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but I was an officer so that, I, you know, every, every private who goes in couldn't do that. You know, I, I was mm -hmm. an officer and they didn't want a big, big, ugly publicity thing of, a black um, black lieutenant. I was a lieutenant at that time. I ended up being a captain. A black lieutenant 
uh, putting the stockade, you know, kind of like the Muhammad Ali situation. Right. I, don't yeah, know if you I was going to bring that up. That. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyway, so that was because I wasn't anti-military. I was just anti-Vietnam War. Right. And so and then I went to Germany and as fate would have it, I <laughs> I had an opportunity to, to do plays. I did uh, Bell Book and Candle. I did uh, Street Scene, my first musical. Um, I did Bad Seed, and I did Dracula. I played the lead in Dracula. <laughs> mm, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> which, which was so I got my I got my feet wet in the acting thing, and then d- during that's during that period of time, I decided that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life because I just loved it so much. And um, and then when I, I got out of the military, my last duty station was in San Francisco at the Presidio. And then I came down to L.A. and started my journey. <clears throat> Excuse me. I remember it was funny. My, one of my bro- my father's brothers, my uncle, Will, he was the guy. He was, he was all the cousins, everybody's favorite uncle. I guess every, probably, every family probably has one of those guys. Yep. He was just <laughs> so cool with all the kids, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. he called me. He said, he talked real fast like my father and all his brothers. He said, what? What you doing in Hollywood? You don't know nobody in Hollywood. Get your butt back home and get a job. <laughs> I said, okay, Uncle Will, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this a shot. And I said, and if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, I'll go back to practicing law. You know, that's not, you know, not a big deal. And, um, and as, as I say, as fate would have it, I, I had a certain amount of success, and, and um, I came down here, and even though I didn't know a soul, I, uh, I was able to make you know, make my way. And it was, voice voice acting wasn't in the picture at all. And, you know, nobody really, you know, you didn't go to New York or go to, come to L.A. to be a voice actor in those days. So it was just to be an on-camera actor. And I was, as, as I say, I was lucky that uh, I was able to. My first job out here was on this show called Barnaby Jones with Buddy Epson. And the director was Leo Penn. Does that name ring a bell? Sean Penn's dad. Oh wow. oh wow! Yeah, wow! Holy cow! Yeah, so, so Sean's dad was my director, the director of my first TV show out here, and he took me under his wing and and he helped me along. So I've been really lucky that um, you know I had a I had an a- angel in New York to get me started, tell me what to do, and then when I came out here, I just happened to um, uh, run into to Leo, and mm-hmm. um, he kind of mentored me along too, and gave me gave me jobs and helped me out. So. Um, I've been I've been so fortunate in my life. I can't tell you, you know, it's so so blessed. As I say, it started with having two wonderful parents who, you know, growing up in the Jim Crow South, they didn't have fun lives. My mom and yeah. dad. Right. That's one of the reasons they got out of the South. And so, um, I mean, it was it wasn't all peaches and cream in Connecticut either, but it was a lot better than down south. You yeah. know, my father couldn't get he couldn't buy a house. He had to get a white friend to buy a house in Connecticut, and uh, and then and then buy it from him. You know that that type of thing. The, the discrimination was kind of subtle, uh, up you know up up north. And um, I remember I was and we were playing baseball. I think it was Pony League baseball, and and we were sending a team down uh, down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You know, an, an all star team, and um, and I was the best player in the league, right? So and then they told me, they said, well, you can't go because Fort Lauderdale. They said they didn't want any colored kids. We were colored then. Everybody called it colored, right? Mm-hmm. In Fort Lauderdale, they didn't want any colored kids down there. So my teammates went down, and I stayed home. You know, it was, it was that that type of that type of discrimination, which is subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, I wasn't traumatized. I was 
I felt badly, but when they came back, I said, how was it? You guys have fun? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, but that was the, the, the lifestyle in, you know, in, in Connecticut. Um, but we weren't fearing for our safety like people in the South right. uh, were, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the fire hoses and, and dogs, you know, weren't sick on us up, up in Connecticut. So, uh, that was, you know, that was a, a, a wonderful thing that my my parents did. Uh, they were toying with taking, bringing us, uh, going to Detroit because the auto industry was billowing and there were a lot of good jobs. But my mother had an uncle who lived in Connecticut, so we went to Connecticut instead. So um, that's pretty much brings us to Hollywood. Hey, that was that was a really good origin. Wow. Right yes, back. it was. It's like I, I felt like I learned so much. You know, I, I did do my research for this episode, but it's just like, man, it's like, you know, you went in depth with everything. And I really appreciate that. Um, the question that I want to ask you about, you know, once you got into Hollywood, uh, because you were you, you know, you served. Did that help you get roles in Hollywood? Like, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, playing police officers or <clears throat> playing a thug on a TV show? No, uh you know, you have to, you know, you bring you back yourself back to those times or imagine those times. Back then, you hid the fact that you were in the military. You didn't tell people mm. because, you know, they would spit on us and everything, you know, call us baby killers because of Vietnam. Mm. And uh, so and if you were in the service, people didn't realize they didn't think about it. Who didn't serve that you didn't have a choice. I, mean, I was lucky that I did. Right. But most people did not have a choice. And so um, it wasn't like, you know, the brothers were, oh, I'm going to Vietnam to kill people, you know, yeah. you just had to go and do it. And so uh, but people didn't think it through like that. So that they uh, even family members would do that to other family members. I mean, not my family, but uh, I've heard I heard so many stories, you know, that like is like they they like they wanted to leave their family and go fight in a war uh, in, in Southeast Asia. But. So we didn't, you know, we didn't, we weren't honored at all. We, so we, we hid the fact that we had been in the military. Uh, and, and luckily that has changed. Now we honor our, our service members. Uh, but back then, though, no, you, you didn't even, you, you know, you just kind of kept it quiet. Yeah. But I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the fact now, like if I wear my hat, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. Um, they, mm -hmm. um, See, though in those days I wouldn't wear this thing. Mm. Yeah, the views have changed like severely, I guess you could say. Especially with Vietnam, it was known as one of the the ugliest ones that we fought, you know. And like you said, it was you know, it was a double-edged sword because you guys a lot of people didn't have a choice, you know. So, right. Yeah, no, very few have a choice. With the yeah. officers, the the program they had was they call it voluntary indefinite. And uh, I don't know if it was because, you know, as a safety valve for that situation or not. But when I mentioned I wasn't I refused to go to Vietnam, you know, I was refusing a lawful order that means in, immediately to the stockade. They came up with that program. So mm -hmm. um, so it diffused it, you know, my, my situation. Right. But yeah. uh, the average person didn't have that. You know, if you weren't an officer, you didn't have that opportunity uh, to, to do that. So you just had to you just had to go. And uh, for for it was horrible, you know. We lost like sixty thousand guys, and soon as I mean, the day we left, it became you know the North Viet Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, they invaded uh, Saigon, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so all of those years and all of those lives were in vain. Because yeah. that country went communist the day we left. So anyway, yep. off that subject. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's what I was going to say. And so this is about the 70s when you get over to Hollywood? Uh, yeah, it was actually 76 I came, 76. I came here. Yeah, I was on active duty from 70 to 76 what um, is, in the Army. What is what is it like for an African-American to be over in Hollywood at this time trying to get roles and not be, not saying maybe you weren't typecasted because you might have been, I don't know, but what is that like going over there as a black man in 1976, 77 and dealing with, you know, the the politics in Hollywood? Well... To tell you the truth, you know, when I first came here, um, it, it was difficult, not just for, for black African-American actors, for everybody, if you didn't know anybody. Right. And there was, you know, there was no social media. There was nothing. So the way I got started was I would I would look into and dramalog this magazine here and, and see where they're casting and. Um, and, and send my picture. So I, it would be cold sendings like, and through snail mail. Right. I send my picture and my resume and I would be lucky to get maybe three or four auditions a year. And obviously you can't make it, you can't make a living that way. Right. Um, but, but I was lucky that, that, uh, that, that things, things happen pretty quickly, but um, in a certain way, uh, I, I don't know if it would give me an, it, it gave me an advantage, but, there weren't a lot of black actors. Mm. And so um, that at that time, the, the, the competition pool was, was, was very shallow. Right. You know, there weren't a lot of black yep. actors there. And so from that standpoint, I could say in a certain way, I might have had a, a, slight, a slight advantage. Um, but I, and also the way the business evolved, there were a lot of, of um, live action shows. With, so that there would be a typically on a guest spot, there would be like the main bad guy is a guest actor, second bad guy, and then maybe five or six of his what they call his goons. His goons, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Goons. And a lot of them were were uh, stunt stunt actors, right? So they would do stunts as well, and um, and so there was a lot of work billowing, and there were a lot of action shows. So there were there were a lot of roles for cops, mm-hmm. and um, so. I became, I had a, a recurring role on this show called Hunter um, and as a cop, and I played doctors and lawyers. I remember they had this show called Divorce Court that had been on years ago in black and white TV, and they brought it back, and mm. they wanted all the lawyers to be actual lawyers. Yeah. So, uh, so that I got in on that, and uh, as a series regular, which was, you know, really cool to to get a series regular job not too long after coming to Hollywood, I was very, very lucky. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, you know, I had nothing to do with the politics of Hollywood. I was just trying to make a buck so, so I could feed my family. And it was a, it was a quest in my part. I, I didn't, I had never failed in anything I'd done in my life. And I convinced myself I was not going to fail at this. So it would be, it would have been very embarrassing if I went home to Connecticut with my tail between my legs and mm-hmm. saying it didn't work out. I, yeah. I, I would have yeah. to work 
work a job like a regular human, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Billingsley, it de- it definitely did not turn on you, and you did phenomenal, and you still are doing phenomenal. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank man. You so much. Well accomplished. That. Yes, sir. So, how was it when you started transitioning into doing voice acting? Like, how did you get into doing that? Uh, it's interesting, and I thought by it, this didn't occur to me to, to not too long ago. One of my first gigs in New York, when I went to New York, uh, I did the voice of a of a, a coach in a puppet movie. I played a pu- I voiced a, a puppet coach, <laughs> and I and I had forgotten about that. So early on in my career, I actually did a voiceover and didn't even realize it. But <laughs> um, but after I'd been out here for a while, I think it was in the middle of the late eighties, um, a friend of mine, Doug Stone. He was, um, um, I guess, the coordinator of doing the voices of foreign live-action movies. Like there would be a German movie, and there would be a, um, a, an African character in the, in the movie. So he asked me if I, you know, if I would voice the African character. And um, and then back in those days, you can't get away with it. Now back in those days, you can just do a general African accent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but now you got, you know, Uganda or uh, yeah. Nigeria. You got to do your research, but with social media now you can. You know, with the internet, you can look, you know, looking up and learn the learn the action. But you know, I went in. And I don't say I said I'm doing this because of my father. You know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we did a number of those, and um, actually, I got to tell you this: we didn't. You know, we work with beeps now, right? You guys are aware of the beeps, right? Where, yeah, you're in. Um, they they queue it up. The engineer cues it up so that they, and they give you three beats, beeps, and you speak where the fourth beep will come. So yeah. it's like, and you breathe on the second beat, and so it's like, beat, breathe, beep, speak. Hmm. That's what you do, right? Um, but back in those days, we didn't have any beeps. All we had was time code. So they would play the scene. We have the dialogue here. We play the scene, and we, you know, get a feel for the scene, and then there would be time codes underneath the screen and you'd look at the time codes and look at the look at the 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 um the video and then look at your lines and then and then go right yeah. it was it was wow tough. it was tough it was and especially you know there's no tra- training for that that was total on the job training yeah. you know there was no there was no class to take or anything so you just go in and did it do it and i remember it was just harrowing it was so it was so frightening, and I was—I remember—I've been in a number of of uh, just terrible situations in my life, but but I was feeling all these nerve, all these nerves about saying words. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, my life yeah. wasn't in danger, but right. you know, you but your your pride—you want to do a good job. You exactly, know, do a good job. You don't want to say, you know what? Well, this isn't working out. We're going to have to replace you. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> That's, you don't want to hear that, right? So, uh, but anyway. Uh, I, I I caught on pretty pretty quick. I'm a pretty fast learner, so I caught on. And but anyway, after doing that for a while, Doug asked me if I wanted to 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 do an anime, and I said, "Well, what's anime?" I had I didn't even know what it was right. because mm-hmm. back in those days, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a, a part of our culture like yeah. it is now. Yeah, nope. yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, so I said, "Well, t- what what is it?" He says, "Well, this is Japanese animation." I said, "Oh, oh okay, all right." He says, "You want to do?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, why not?" And um, started doing that, and I said, "Oh, this is fun! I love doing this." 
you know, we didn't, we weren't talking about cartoons, but that was in my mind, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. I grew up mm-hmm. watching Saturday morning cartoons, you know, Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes and all yeah. of that stuff. Classic. And I was thinking, oh, this is awesome. I'm doing, I'm doing a cartoon. <laughs> and that, Cause I never <laughs> thought about doing something like that. And then, um, you know, I did, um, and a number of jobs, and half of them I don't even remember. I guess they might be on my IMDb, but um, um, yeah, I, I did. I did a number of them. I did the lead uh, OG in this anime called Legend of Black Heaven, mm-hmm. and I, I, I played a, a rock musician, and I saved the universe with my music. That's pretty <laughs> <sick>. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh. But yeah, and then um, I guess they did a little of this, a little of that. And then um, Kevin Seymour is one of the angels who helped me in my life. Uh, asked me if I wanted to do, uh, you know, Cowboy Bebop. And I said, sure. I didn't even know what it was, but, you know, it yeah. was work. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was work. And I loved doing the, the, the animation, voicing the animation. And um, so I remember the first day I was thinking Cowboy Bebop. I was thinking Cowboys. I right. I can't. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. I've been spitting, chewing tobacco, you know. So, so <laughs> I remember the first day I, I, in the booth, Mary Elizabeth and I, we were trying to figure out, you know, what kind of voice does this does Jet Black have? And and as I said, you know, I hadn't seen anything. I wasn't aware of Cowboy Bebop or what it was. So I just went by the name and I didn't realize that the Bebop was my ship and all right. of that. So. Um, so I suggested, I said, you know, you talk like a little twang like that, like that, you know, she said, um, probably not, Bo. Uh, (laughs) 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 she said, let's, let's go out on a limb. Why don't we use your voice and we'll tweak it a little bit. And I was thinking my voice, that's boring. No, I don't, I want to do a character. I don't want to do it. She said, no, we're going to, we're going to do. And, um, that's how we, you know, that's how we ended up with, with, with Jet, you know, Hey Spike, Timey, you know. Mm. That's right. <laughs> One of the greatest beef. anime characters That's of right. all time. Oh, thank you. Man. I was just thank about you. to ask I, you to I do feel that. Very lucky to have, have, have been chosen to to do Jet. I mean, he's he's had it's it's had a very positive impact on my life uh, through the convention culture. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Because I had you know back in the day, I didn't go to any conventions. I didn't have. You didn't interact with your fans. I remember I was on this show, General Hospital, for a while, and we every August we'd have a fan luncheon, and yeah. so they would do that, and so people from around the country and around the world could come, and you know they pay a certain amount of money, and they they'd have a luncheon, and they get a chance to meet us, we sign autographs and everything, and um, I remember there was one where there was a family from Toronto. Came was a family of four: husband, wife, and a teenage daughter, teenage son, and they all came to the um, General Hospital fan luncheon. I thought, what a great thing! They they arranged their family vacation to come to you know to come to see us. But um, yeah, so there wasn't that interaction. We get fan letters, get a lot of fan letters on the soaps. But when the convention started, I mean, this is awesome. You can actually talk to human beings who who've seen your work or listened to your work. And um, and that's probably one of the most one of the most enjoyable aspects of my life, going to the conventions and talking to fans and and actually is listening to fans because um, I, I love to hear the impact that my work has had on people. And I never had any idea, you know, 
we know we're not doing brain surgery. You know, we're not going to fool ourselves. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, listening to all of the stories, it's uh, it just warms your heart to hear how your work has positively impacted someone's life. And so often I've heard the stories about uh, people are having a hard time in their life. It's a bad period in their life, a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend or, or troubles in college or, you know, whatever it was. And and uh, a friend would give them, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to watch Cowboy Bebop. And so they watch Cowboy Bebop and say, oh, it's just like it was so soothing and I loved it. And it took me out of my own head and it just helped me so much in, in my in my life. So uh, the... And, and, and of course, not just not just Jet, but the Raikage and uh, Ogreman and Digimon. I don't yeah. know if you guys watched yeah. Digimon oh, at yeah. all. Oh, yeah, we're there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll say, uh, you know, one of the projects that you worked on, like while you weren't a character up there, you narrated at the start of each episode, which is Outlaw Star, which oh, is a Outlaw very, Star, yeah. It's a mm. very underrated anime. And like how you were saying how... <laughs> You know, you've had fans come to you and tell you, like, you know, you helped me out through this or, you know, right. like I watched this and I was inspired by stuff like your narration and outlaw star was an amazing like on every episode, like uh, to, you know, just get things rolling. I, I wish pe more people would check that anime out. Like when you ask people about outlaw star, like most of the time they're going to say, I've never even heard of it or I've never seen it, man. But it was such an amazing show. And I wanted to ask. Was it because of Outlaw Star? Like, did that kind of help with, you know, you getting on Cowboy Bebop? Because it's like, I kind of feel like both shows are very similar. Yeah, I to tell you the truth, I can't even remember which came first. Uh, we looked it up. It, uh, Outlaw Star came first. Yes. And then, by, yeah, by, and then but literally by, like, months. Yeah, yeah by, by months. like, a yeah. season. So. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you, know, you know who the director of Outlaw Star was? Who, who was that? Wendy Lee, she voiced Faye. In yeah, she did yeah, Faye's yeah. voice. Yeah. Wow. She, she directed Outlaw Star. I did not know what? that. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was it was kind of like a family affair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, it makes wow, sense. that's awesome. It makes sense now. Um, it's, it's crazy because I know um, we have Kyle Heber on our, our podcast, and one of the questions that I had asked him was like, you know, are there ever any times where because you're a name in the voice acting field, do you, you know, still have to audition for certain roles? Or is it like, well, you know, I already know who you are. We're just going to bring you in. You can still audition, but, you know, we kind of want to give you the role. So is that how it was for Cowboy Bebop and Outlaw Star because you work with Wendy? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't remember auditioning. I didn't audition for uh Cowboy Bebop, and I don't recall actually auditioning for Outlaw Star. No, I didn't have much in it. I mean, it was just a narration. Right. But, um, oh, but, no. uh, that narration's any, important, any... man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was important. You know, it was significant, but I didn't have a lot to do. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the, I, I get, I get offered jobs and I also audition. So years ago, it was more offers than, than audition, but now, in a certain way, the, the business is kind of flooded, you know, compared to where it was before, yeah. uh, especially since people have home studios. And, uh, you know, back in when I came to Hollywood, you that's what you had to do. You had to make a commitment. You had to believe in yourself to say, OK, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving my comfort zone and I'm I'm going to the big time. Yeah, uh, I don't know anybody, but I'm going to my going right. to the big time. 
And um, so, uh, and that's the beauty of the business now that, you know, people can, can dabble in the business without uh, leaving their comfort zone. You know, yeah. they can actually be at, be at home in their hometown and, and, and do it. And so that's a, that's a beautiful thing. But, you know, I, I want to jump back to years ago when I first started my career. I was telling my granddaughter, I remember years ago, now my oldest granddaughter, she just graduated from, from a film school at Occidental College. Uh, but I remember telling her, I said, do you know that years ago uh, there was, I had to drive to the studio to pick up um, sides to, to audition? And she mm -hmm. said, what? <laughs> you had... You had to drive to go pick up paper? Yeah. There was no email. <laughs> I said, yeah, there was no email. There wasn't even any fax machines, right? And I remember, uh, you know, the, the whole setup was, would be is your agent would call you to see, you know, tell you, you you have an audition. And the first thing is how big is the role? Because if it's a small role, you're not going to make two trips to, to MGM or to Sony or 20th Century Fox. You know, if it's a small role... And I get the audition today, and I, I have to go tomorrow. I would I would just go early tomorrow, you know, instead of driving and making two drives. Because back in those days, gas was, I mean, everything was a financial factor. Right. You know, I'm trying yeah. to support a support a family, and um, so if it's a larger role, you know, I like to sleep on it, obvious for obvious reasons, and uh, so that would be the the determination. Um, so. And then when fax machines came, we were jumping for joy. All of the, all of the actors, they're going to send us the size. Isn't that amazing? They're going to send mm -hmm. us the script. Oh my God! And uh, it was a, it was a big, it was a life changer, you know, to be able to. Of course, on the paper, it was that the, the print would fade, and you know, the paper would turn yellow, <laughs> all of that. But uh, but yeah, it was it was a is a time where. I mean, it was just a, it was just a different time, so, right. you know, just a totally different time. And now so much uh, with the electronics and, and sending information age where you can send information, you can get information like we walk. Everybody's walking around with an encyclopedia in their pocket. You know, okay. anything you want to know, you look it up on the phone. Right. So what a wonderful way to live. But back in those days, it was like, first of all, you didn't it was hard just to get an audition. We used to say if you got an audition, you that was that was your success. And if if you if you actually book the job, then there's like you're you're out you're over the moon now. Right. I actually booked the job. The people would say, "I got an audition! I got an audition!" It was so hard to get an audition. Um, but luckily, you know, as they say, for me, I, I was able to to make it through and and to hang and to hang tough and to be able to put food on the table for my family and and live a life and you know buy a house and send the kids to college and all of that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, you had to have a lot of self-esteem in one respect, especially if you have people dependent on you. If you're a, if you're a lone wolf, that's one thing, you know, you can sleep on somebody's couch or, or whatever, but if you got a family, <laughs> you, yeah. there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders to feed them. You know, kids oh, yeah. want to eat every day. I don't get it, but they want right. to eat every day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, something I do, though, want to bring up before we even move on from this is that Banks had brought up our second episode was Cowboy Bebop. Our very first episode with D was Outlaw Star. Wow. Oh, yep. So it's like, this man doesn't even know how important to the pod, the foundation of the podcast he is. You know wow. what I mean? 
He doesn't wow. know. We're, we're really connected. That's uh-huh. yeah, degrees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you nonchalant nonchalantly mentioned you were on General Hospital, like it's just some random show. Yeah, General you know, Hospital like, is pretty big. You know, it's the longest running daytime television show. And how many actors have came from daytime soap operas? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. They right, had a role yeah, on that at one time. People, right. Right. There were a lot of a lot of actors who left daytime and tried to make it and couldn't and went back to daytime. Right. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So uh, Tony Geary, who I, I played his best friend on on General Hospital. He he tried that. And Jeannie Francis tried it. You know, Jeannie left General Hospital. I don't know if you guys remember this, that Luke and Laura business. It, it might have been before your time, but it, Luke and Laura got married on General Hospital. And it was one of those situations where it actually um, uh, went beyond soap. So it became like part of the culture, Luke and Laura, Luke and right, Laura, yeah. Luke and Laura. And, um, and then so they both left the show because they wanted bigger careers in regular Hollywood. And uh, and they both went back because it didn't it didn't work out. I worked with Jeannie Francis when she, just after she left General Hospital. I, I worked with her on this miniseries called North and South uh, with Forrest Whitaker, and it was a Civil War uh, epic. And so mm-hmm. I had the I had the the honor to play an enslaved person, which was. Uh, that was rough. That 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 was that was a it was a it was an experience that was both fantastic and and saddening, you know, because I'm I'm portraying an enslaved person. Mm-hmm. But the, the the irony of that that gig was we started off in Charleston, where I was born, mm-hmm. as a, at this uh, plantation called Boone Hall outside of Charleston, and my parents came down because uh, they had never been on the set, never saw me work on the set. They saw me in court on a murder trial, but they didn't see me. <laughs> on the set, so they came down, and and so it was, it was like a reunion, and it was very nostalgic for them. They went uh, down on um, uh, Bofane Street, where where we lived, right after I was born, and the Roper Hospital, where I was born. And um, but portraying an enslaved person was a real challenge, you know, because as an actor, you're trying to, you're always trying to find a piece of yourself that melds with the character, right? And but mm-hmm. this was. You know, this wasn't just some some show I'm doing. This is that that was in my heart. This was historical. And so I meditated and I did everything I could to try to to uh, envision myself and to be an enslaved person. And, um, you know, t- getting into their bones to think, well, what does what did an enslaved man think about just as he went to bed? Yeah. What were, mm. what were on his what was on his mind when he first woke up in the morning, you know, in a situation where. Um, somebody owned you and could whip you and and and, and rape your woman um, and and steal uh, you know take your children sell your children and you could do nothing about it um, and so yeah it was a great emotional experience for me but it was also great from the standpoint of it was a it was a nice gig I was getting paid good money um, I was working went. You know, it combined kind of like a family reunion. We went to my grandparents' grave out in Olanta, South Carolina, and and Olanta. There's that's a, there's a one horse town called Olanta, O L A N T A, South Carolina, where my mother was born. And um, there are people in South Carolina who don't know Olanta. So that tells you how small that town, that mm. town was. There are people in South Carolina who never heard of Olanta, South Carolina. But um, but anyway, which is about a hundred miles northeast north or west of, of, of Charleston. 
Um, but yeah, portraying a role like that, um, I was really happy that I got the gig, that we were shooting in Charleston. Uh, my parents came came down, and um, but it was also that double-edged sword, as I'm sure you can understand, that um, it, it wasn't total joy because of what I was doing. My character, Ezra, right. was an enslaved yeah. person. And, uh, and I, I, I say to people, no matter what color you are, imagine yourself a slave. Yep. Yeah. Just imagine yourself being enslaved by somebody that they could do whatever they wanted to you. They could whip yeah. you. They could kill you. Whatever they want. They could mm. rape your woman. They could take your children. And you could say nothing and do nothing about it. Um, so. can, can you even imagine wanting to do that to somebody? Yeah. I think that's the other side of the coin, too, is that there's something in you that gives you satisfaction in doing that to somebody. Is uh, That's not even human. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's an interesting point of view. I hadn't thought about that, right? Yep. To be on that other side of that coin, and especially from my my standpoint, as I say, you know, my parent, I didn't even, I get, I didn't get spanked. Right. I, mean, yeah, I don't yeah, know how yeah. many people can say that, you know, and especially in the black community, because unfortunately, oh, right. oh yeah, you yep. know, they, they, that we, and I, I talked to my father. I didn't realize, you know, you grow up as you grow up, right? right? Yep. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't realize. How hard that was as a parent. Mm-hmm. I remember I called my I called my, my my mom and dad one point. I mean, my son was just I just wanted to knock him out. You know, yes. I mean, I saw, mm-hmm. <laughs> our parents so, have been there. Oh yeah. yeah. And so I, I you know I called him. I said, "How did you do it? How did you not? How did you mm-hmm. not hit me? You know how many?" And uh, well, my father was on it. My mother and I usually did all the talking. My father would do most of the listening. He'd be on the other extension, and I hear him going. <laughs> like that, and my mother said, "Oh, it wasn't easy." No, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, sure, it wasn't easy. But um, I remember actually ask, asking for a beating. Uh, I lived on a cul-de-sac, and the woods are all behind the houses, and it was a large cul-de-sac where there was a circle, and there was a grassy area in the middle of the circle when you turned around. And um, but but I remember um, I was being punished, and my father said, uh, "Okay." Um, you you can't go out to play for two weeks, and I I said two weeks. I yeah, can't, you might as well just kill me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> two weeks I can't go out to play because as I said, the situation there was always kids kids yelling and screaming and laughing, and dogs barking, and and it was just like this wonderful place to grow up. And and my bedroom was on the front of the house, so the kids. I remember one time the kids came. You know how you. would uh, we didn't go into each other's houses that much back in those days. And, yeah. uh, but I remember the kids would come and throw a stone at my window and say, hey, Bo, come on out. We're going to go down in the woods and make a fort. And <laughs> I, I said, I can't. I'm on punishment. Yep. And they said, oh, <laughs> okay. And then they left. You know, it's just, I, got no, I got no commiseration at all. So anyway, I asked my dad, uh, I asked my dad, well, let me tell you this other part of the story is there was this French family, Dufresne, and uh, there were two boys, and they were, you know, like the rest of us, uh, running around and, you know, but uh, uh, Mr. Dufresne came out, he was looking for Frankie, and yeah. uh, and he would get, he said, have you seen Frankie? And we're going, uh-oh, Frankie's in for it now, and he, he wandered around the neighborhood and he found Frankie. And he was beating them home. He was hitting them, wow. something in the back of the head and stuff, and beating them home. And, oh boy, Frankie's in for it. And then, putting in like a half an hour later, Frankie's back out playing. 
You know, right. it was, it was, yeah, yeah. I guess he took his beating. It was over. So I asked, I asked for a beating. I told my, I told my dad, I said, um, why don't you just give me a beating? Why don't you just give me a spanking? And then I can go out in the place. And no, no, we don't, we don't have violence. There's no violence in our house. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to just be in here for, and we, oh, listen to this. And we had just gotten a color TV set mm. and I could you could have watched TV. Uh, I remember those days. Oh my god! When you only had one that TV in the house, big. that was big, huh? When you only had one TV in the house in the family yeah. room, and there was no no such thing as a remote. Uh-huh. Yep. You turn the channel like that. Yeah, I got yelled at because I was turning the channel too fast. Like, stop uh-huh. turning that channel so fast. Huh? <laughs> you know, it's 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 crazy. You know, you talk about like growing up because you know when you were coming up and when we were coming up. You know, when we got in trouble, you know, we had to stay inside the house. We weren't allowed to watch TV. We couldn't play our video game systems. But you think about kids nowadays, it's like, you know, when you, when they get in trouble, it's just like, I'm taking your tablet and cell phone away. Go outside and play. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the complete opposite. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. yes, do something. Yeah. The, the kids probably say, I don't know how to go out and hide and play. What is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I use my thumbs. thumbs. Better go figure it out. Yeah, we were always running and playing and and climbing trees and shooting our slingshots and and using our hatchets. And, you know, everything was just, it was like, especially in the summer, as soon as you ate breakfast, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you ate breakfast, you were out. I remember my mom told me I wasn't even allowed to leave the house till 10. I had to wait till at least 10 to give the parents a chance to wake up and stuff. Yeah. Because I I was ready to go. Yep. You had to make sure that you let them know where you were going at and yep. if you were going to be outside. Oh, we know that streetlight uh-huh. rule. The streetlight yeah, rule. Yeah. yeah. When streetlights come on, streetlights come on. Better be yeah. in that yard. Yeah, <laughs> we would disappear. It was, it was, we had the woods in the back. And uh, you were always trying to get the girls to go down in the woods. But, you know, all the girls had the strict rules. They did not go into the woods. Uh huh. <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my father. My father had a theory. He felt that um, he said there was no, he was never going to introduce violence into our house because he was just teaching me that that would be one option in solving conflicts with people. Right. You know, to to hit somebody and um, and it, you know, right or wrong, that was his theory that he felt that there was too much of that in the black community. Because what would happen? This is the cycle. What would happen is you know when children are around too. I don't know if you guys had kids. You have kids. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, around two o'clock, uh, two years old is when they get what they call the terrible twos. My mother called it the terrific twos. That's when the children, they all do it, start rebelling and say, no, I'm not going to do this. No, no, no. But they go through that period. They right. all do. And it changes. Right. But a lot of people who didn't know that because my parents read Dr. Spock. So um, they anticipated all that. They stay stayed ahead of my cycles as yeah. a child because there's a period of time where a child only wants a mother. Then the child only wants a father. And then around 10 or 11, the child is afraid of the parents dying for whatever reason, right? And so those are cycles that the child would go through. And if you didn't know it, in, in our community, a lot of people didn't know that, that that was in the, around two, two years old is when they started hitting their kids, mm. thinking they have a bad seed. Right. Don't you yeah. say no to me, yeah. you know? And, and then and that started the pattern that continued on, continued on, especially with the boys. And so uh, physical interaction with people like that was like something that they just knew. You know, that's what you did. My mother and father both had the same stories where my grandfathers they go out and pick a switch. So they had yep. to go out and get a switch. Uh, 
and then uh, and then they would tear up the, what they call tear up them legs. They went oh, just above the ankles, just tear up them legs, right? You you remember that stuff? <laughs> yes, yeah. And don't and don't you come back inside the house with a little stick? Yeah, right. a big, yeah. Oh my It'll god, it'll be worse for you. It'll be yeah. worse for you, right? But yep. my parents is right. My parents, neither one of them graduated from high school. They ended up getting their GEDs, but um, they were smart enough to 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 stop that that cycle in our family. And my kids were raised the same way. You know, hmm. I I didn't put my hands on my kids in in in, in anger. Um, and I tried not to, as a matter of fact, my son, he's an attorney, right? My son was talking with one of his, uh, uh, colleagues and they were, uh, swapping stories about how they grew up. And, and my son was saying that, um, I told him dad, how you yelled at me only one time. And I said, I didn't, yell, I never yelled at you. He said, yeah, yeah, you did. And I said, what? And so it actually is this time when I had just come back. Uh, from doing the Blob, you guys remember that movie? The oh blob? yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah. One of my favorites. So I was in, I, we were in Louisiana, and he got, he was in middle school, and he got tangled up with the wrong crowd, and they were doing some bad stuff. Um, and I, I'm sitting in my hotel room talking to the, the principal of the school about Ooh. my son, and I was thinking, I never imagined I would be doing this. So, but anyway, the boys around twelve. That's when they really need their father to straighten them out. So when I I, I came home and I was talking to him uh, and explaining to him um, how disappointed I was in his behavior, and he had this he had the kind of like this gang stance like this, he was like, <laughs> he was like that. And, uh, <laughs> so so I said, uh, no, we're not doing that. So I grabbed him by his and straighten him out. And I let him know how strong I was. Straighten him out. And I said, you stand up straight and you look me in the eye when I'm talking to you. And, uh, and he said, okay, dad, you know, he came, he really became a little boy that time. Cause he wasn't used to me putting my hands on him. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and not like that. And yeah. I didn't hit him, but I just straightened him up. And I said, remember one thing that I understand you doing that out in the world, but you don't do that in his house. I said, we're on the same side in this house. We're not adversaries. So yeah. now you just stand up, look me in the <clears throat> eye, and listen to what I have to tell you, and you better do what I tell you to do. And uh, you know, so I I outlawed his behavior with that other, those other two kids. One of them's dead, and one's in a, one's in jail, or was in wow. jail. He might, he's probably out by now. But mm. he was in, you know, he was in with a bad group. But anyway, so uh, that was what he was talking about me yelling. I said I didn't yell at you. I just spoke with to you with energy. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He said what? I said, I just spoke with you. Actually, I brought my voice down. I brought my voice down. He said, I don't remember that way. I said, yeah, that's what I did. But, I, but you know, I became this this raging father. You're like, don't you ever. Don't yeah. you ever. Because what they were doing, they were throwing rocks at, at this apartment building, breaking people's windows. Wow. Can you imagine that? Uh, yeah, that I can get you in busted. a lot of... I actually got... Yeah, and that can get you in a lot of taken trouble. Taken home by the know, cops people, when I was a kid doing you, that. Dang, Trev, like, I didn't know about this. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, you, you bust out the wrong window. You know, you, you win a prize, as I like to say. You know, the right person comes out there. It can go a lot further than, you know, oh. you know law. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, some people oh, yeah. will take it into their own hands, and it gets dangerous, you know? Yeah, definitely. Things can change yeah. fast. Can you imagine you're sitting in your house, and a rock comes through your window. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I don't think you think about that, though, when you're being mischievous. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? You yeah, really don't think about consequences. No, and that, right. that's that's fine. But uh, you know, to Mr. Billingsley's uh, credit, you know, with him growing up, where he grew up, you know, and the times that he grew up in, you know, the wrong person of color comes out of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah it could get very right. serious. And you know, yeah. you got to think like that, though. Definitely you know? right. That's definitely yeah. true. That's a okay. that's a good point. That's exactly but, uh, what I was thinking. That's wow. You know what but I love right, about? Yeah. Oh, so you know what I love about this episode though is um. This has been a life lesson episode. <laughs> you know what Hell I mean? Yeah, man. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really yeah. just a bunch of kids sitting around learning life lessons from the generation Grandpa. before them. You know what I mean? And I yeah. really have enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah. Dude, this has been phenomenal. I will say, like, it, it's a very different episode because, you know, usually, like, we just get straight into, like, the anime talk and all of that. And, like, I'm really enjoying just, like, hearing, like, life stories and whatnot. And, um, you know, as you were talking about Mr. Billingsley, like, you know, growing up and, you know, going down to the creek and playing in the woods, it reminds me of this cartoon called Craig of the Creek. I don't know if you ever heard of it. No. But it's like, you know, I feel like you would be perfect to, you know, do a, a voice role on that show with the stories that you told us, because, like, that's pretty much what the show is about. It's about a kid who goes down to the creek with his friends um, it's a show with a black family, which is, you know, uh, uh, something that you really don't see when it comes to a lot of cartoons. I mean, like you're starting to see more representation now when it comes to, uh, you know, black families and cartoons and just black, you know, characters in general, whether it be anime or cartoons. But, you know, it, it really makes me think, you know, when you're talking about like your stories as a youth, I think that you would be awesome to be on that show with the talented cast that they have up there. Well, maybe I'll play one of the kids. What? Did you? <laughs> oh, no. Let's do it. That I got to check. Yeah, that I got to check. <laughs> yeah, I can do that voice, you know. Um, it, it was. I got to tell you a quick story about Digimon. Uh, I had just come out of a session. I did uh, Ogamon, Sagittarius, Horomon, Parrotmon. I did a lot of moms, right? And I wanted to do a Jamaican mon, but they, there was no. There was right. no Jamaican mon. Right? <laughs> But I remember I coming out of a session and, and uh, Jamie said, uh, Bo, can you do children's walla? And I had just been growling as, as, as Ogreman, right? And um, I said, oh, children's walla? I never I never thought about it. And she said, well, let's, let's, let's go in and see. And that's, you know, that's what I did. Hey, where's everybody? Where's it? Oh, you guys got free candy? Where was I? What in the town? Oh, everybody got free candy but me. <laughs> and... and so he said, "Okay, this will work. This will work. Let's do this." So a lot of people don't know that I actually did some of the some of the kids in uh, in, <laughs> in Digimon. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I didn't know that, man. And, you know, and like to go back to you know what I was saying about the black representation and you know anime because you know last year we were able to sit down with Ken Michael who voiced it on Cannon Busters and. You know, you see these animes coming out now, like Cannon Busters or even Shippuden, where it's like the black characters on the show. It's like I felt like they were represented well, like they didn't look like black caricatures that you would see in older anime. And uh, even another anime that you were on, Tiger and Bunny, when you played Ben, it's like the, the characters on that show, like they like they look like black people. Like they look like, you know, they look like you. They look like me. It's like they don't look like they were drawn funny. Like, how do you feel about black representation in the world of anime well it's it's growing that's that's the good thing you know mm -hmm. as i say when i started um 
there were hardly any there uh, you know there i can't remember there really being any actual black characters right right yeah and so like og i the one who was saving the universe with his music and legend of black heaven right he was just like this regular sort of caucasian looking japanese guy who um was working in an office and at night he was doing his music and saving the universe and so and i i'd done a number of characters that i wasn't and there was no thought about to my knowledge about jet because jet is like gray you know and um and i think that because i ended up voicing jet so now jet is going to be black in the live action uh, yes uh, so but um yeah there there are uh characters that are like um the raikage uh, mm-hmm. you know i mean if you look at him he's you know he's blonde haired big blonde haired dude right right yeah uh of course you know my my little brother because i B is is the is the character. He was I wanted to do B. Damn it. Right. <laughs> you know? Hey, um, was so, B was so fun. Hey, uh, sorry to cut you off, but uh, we had Katero Cobera up here as a guest. Oh, did Killer he? B. Yeah, yeah really awesome. nice. Guy. He's awesome, man. Yeah, and that character that character is so fun. But but I'm kind of type typecast anyway, and I you know that's fine with me. Um, I voiced the character in Last Hope. I don't know if you, it was on Netflix. And he literally looked like Jet. Hmm. I mean, the hair and everything, he just looked like Jet. And um, so that was one of the, the, the gigs that were just offered to me because right. um, for, for obvious obvious reasons. But um, let me think. And uh, Old Man Rom on uh, R0. Zero, uh, uh, yeah, R0. Zero. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the bar the bartender, um, he wasn't black, um, so the I, I, it was beautiful. As I say once again, it comes back to how how blessed and how fortunate I am in my life and the timing of when I arrived here in Hollywood and and my timing and in the my involvement in um, the voice world, um, the, the race wasn't a factor or. Might even even help me in in a certain to a certain degree. Uh, I remember when I, I a lot of my live action career back in the day. When I go for an audition, there wasn't like all black folks for the role I was auditioning for. There would be it would be a multicolored waiting room. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, like a prison. I remember I did on this show called Profiler. I, I, I played a prison warden, and I remember in the audition room, uh, I think there were like two blacks, uh, uh, a couple of Asian guys, and like five or six Caucasian guys. And um, so it didn't, it, it was about the work. I felt it was about the work, and that has been uh, my good fortune to experience, that it's been about the work as about the color of my skin. And... And if you, you know, I understand minorities wanting to do their own uh, minority characters. And uh, I, I totally get that. But, you know, the other side of that coin is I would not have been able to do a, a Caucasian character if that was the rule back in the day when I started. Right. So yeah. you're not white. You can't do this. Right. Yeah. I've, <laughs> and, uh, I've brought that up before. No, have you? Yeah. About that just being an issue with the guy uh, voice in Cleveland stepping out from Family Guy and mm-hmm. a lot of people, uh, I guess, wanting people to play the role of 
what the character is skin tone wise and that may be limiting the mobility of the characters well the thing is especially with historically um there were so few roles for people of color that it was such an insult and a slap in the face to have a caucasian person do one of the you know one of the few roles that is available to right talking you know so um it, it it's there's not exactly a parallel when you flip it but there is that consideration you know um years ago like mickey rooney played this character of a chinese person uh and there's a lot of that had been going on on broadway caucasian actors playing um asian actors playing asian characters and they would they monkey with the eye makeup right and um and so, and I think years ago there wasn't enough representation for uh, Asian actors to, to speak up and to you know to change that that behavior. But I mean, it's in a certain way we come back to white privilege, which is you know all the way through our our our, our culture, and it's it's um, and it is what it is. But a lot of people don't understand you know, I, you know i've talked to friends who, who say well, i don't feel like i have a white privilege i said well if i'll explain to you my life experience you'll see what i mean right you don't have to look over your shoulder when you're going someplace like i mm-hmm. you know sure. and, and and you you weren't you weren't deprived of stuff because your skin is white <laughs> you, you got stuff because your skin is white and uh, i i was cut out of stuff because and you know and it ran all the way through in my little community I remember um, my English teacher in high school, when I was a sophomore, she was going to give extra credit for if you wrote poetry. So I wrote a poem called Nihilist Die, and I talked about communism, nihilism, socialism, um, and she refused to believe that I wrote that poem. Right. And she she thought I stole that from someplace. Right. Because in her mind, I just did not have the mental capacity to write that poem. Yeah. Mm. And I remember when I got my scores back from the LSAT, I don't know if they still do it now. The, the, I'm not the LSAT, the SAT, the, the, the uh, Scholastic Aptitude Test, mm-hmm. the writing samples. And I got such high marks. They were all like astounded. And I was thinking, they're teachers. You know, I said, yeah, yeah, okay, you did so great. And I was like, why are you so astounded? Right. Why are you shocked? <laughs> <to> sh- yeah. <laughs> what? Why are you shocked? And I was thinking maybe it was because I was an athlete and that's the way they saw me. And, you know, in, mm. in a lot of people's minds, either you're a jock or you're a brain, but you're not both. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, we're past that now, I think. Uh, you know, there are plenty of you know, there are ex NFL players who are medical doctors, you know. But yep. but back in that time, I think it was a combination of me being an athlete and being brown that and that woman went to our church. I mean, she knew our family. But she she just could not get around the fact that I had brain wow. to write that poem. And I never wrote another poem, which is also sad. She stifled me. She she just she just stifled me and um and I just you know, I just let it go and just kinda like disappeared into being a jock, I guess. And the same yeah. thing a similar thing happened with the art teacher in junior high school. I mean he I wrote I I, I, I had won second place in a an art contest in grammar school in citywide. And then I did this, I did this um, Greek landscape and I, and I drew these olive trees and it literally like made him mad. He he was like mad. 
He was saying, this shows no imagination at all. And I was just, I was just, you know, doing what I thought was a landscape. If you're doing a landscape, how much imagination does it take? You're just trying to uh, depict a landscape that you have in your mm -hmm. mind, as I saw in comic books or whatever. Uh, yep. But he, he embarrassed me in front of the whole class. Right. You know, and he stifled me so much, and I just let that go. I let, I mean, apparently I wasn't destined to, to have art be as a significant part of my life, but a teacher is supposed to nurture yeah. as opposed mm -hmm. to holding you back and, you know, making fun of you in front of everybody, which, you know, at that age, that's that's devastating if you're in, you're yeah. in front of your, your classmates. And, um, but I don't know, how do we get down to that? You know, I, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because I, I, I think they're important topics, you know, that yeah. need to be talked about. I mean, because mm -hmm. even, you know, your generation facing that stuff, there's still kids that are younger than us that are still facing, yeah. you know, those kind of things. So, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, 70 it's years goes by, we're still talking about the same thing. And yeah. It's like, oh. And just to piggyback off of what Trav's saying, you know, being a teacher is a very critical position and you know everybody's life in the country essentially and to slight anybody because of how they view something especially art it, it's basically it is what you envision not what they envision and it's just just an example that's that's terrible you know yeah it's, it's, i it's mean very but, in, true. It, but in the same token i want to thank those people because they gave us you so <laughs> <laughs> yep. i survived you know that's right they, they they felt that in parenting, I remember when my daughter was born, uh, she's the oldest of my two. My mm -hmm. father said, okay, now your most, your most important function in life is as a father. Because, you know, you're responsible for nurturing a human being, right. bringing them right. up. And, and he said, the, 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 one, of your, the, one of the most important things you can do is foster your, your children's self-esteem. And that's what they did with me. And that's what they felt that hitting, hitting a child is 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 uh eats into their self-esteem and their personal that thought of themselves and their personal worth and mm -hmm. um so uh that was that was something that i i took to heart but you know mostly you know i got i got actual lessons that were expressed to me but so much of my understanding of life my approach to life was simply by um observing the example my parents uh set for me how they dealt mm -hmm. with other people you know they're always giving gifts to people they're always the, the mailman. The 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 we, back in the day, everything was delivered. We, so we had a bread man, we had a milk man. You know, milk would be at the front door. Yeah, uh, on the yeah. front step. So they would give they would give gifts to the milkman, the bread man, um, the mailman, the paper man, uh, or the paper boy, we call him. And um, and so uh, and then because they got it back, you know, and, and during Halloween time in the fall. A mysterious pumpkin would show up on our porch. <laughs> you know, right. We try to figure out, okay, what neighbor brought us a pumpkin and left it there? And we, you know, we kind of like a game. Mm -hmm. And and where I grew up, where it was, uh, a lot of it is back east. Out here, everything is gated. But back east, you know, we didn't have we didn't have fences and walls and things. So you could run through our whole neighborhood through everybody's backyard. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so you knew your neighbors. You chatted with your neighbors and. And it was a your neighborhood was like it was a community. It was it was really an awesome way to grow up. And I don't know about where you guys are, but here in, in California, everybody has a gate and a, and a, sometimes a, you know the gate for the driveway. But if not that, there are walls around their their property so that they don't know the name of the person two doors down because yeah. everybody sticks to themselves. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the community, as they say, it takes a community to raise a child. And, and uh, that's that's the way it was with me. A lot of times when I messed up, my father knew before I got home. So I, <laughs> when I got home, he, he's and I said, oh, no, he's talking real quiet. No, <laughs> he knows. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> he knows. He's going to come over here and sit My mom would do the same thing, too, though. My mom would give gifts to the bus driver. You know, uh, to, I'm like, why? You know, and as a kid, you're like, why do I need to give the bus driver a gift? But sometimes right. it's that little bit, you know yep. what I mean? That little mm-hmm. bit of appreciation. Community relations, you know, it's human nature, it's human relations. And and um, I think that as we were talking about the left and the right, it, it seems like that's one of the differences that I perceived that um, the, like, during the, in the late sixties and early seventies, they had the, you know, the flower children. Right. I remember I was walking down the street in New York. It was 1969. And, uh, when I had just gone down, I was still in law school. I was walking down the street and somebody, um, tossed me a joint and I said, um, have a nice day, brother. And I said, Oh, <laughs> just walked by and tossed me a joint, you know? Jeez. And, uh, it was, uh, as I say, because of Vietnam and make love, not war, the flower children, there was this, and, and people kind of made fun of them, people on the other side, on right. the right, would make fun. But it was a wonderful, warm space to be in where people were, it was like a, a great thing to do a random act of kindness for somebody, you know, not to get something back, just just to do a nice kindness to somebody. And, um, and that's the way I... I've tried to live my life. I remember I was in a bank and there was this older woman. Uh, she, she went and, and she, she had, she has, she was $10 short on something. I don't remember what it was. And I was behind her and I just happened. And, and then, uh, so, you know, I gave her, I gave her the money and, uh, and she, 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 she just started weeping. Right. And it was like 10 or $20. I mean, it was just, just a small amount, but it was a big, a big deal to her. Right. And, um, and of course I felt good about it. And, um, and I remember my mother explaining to me that, um, <clears throat> allow people to give, to, to do good, good things for you. Cause I was, I would always say to my kids, don't get me a gift. Don't do this. You know, don't get me a gift. Give me garden. She said that, and she said, you, you feel good when you give people gifts, right? I said, yeah. She says, well, allow people to feel good to give you gifts. And because I had never thought of it that way. Right. You know, I have yeah. the money I need. I, I have everything I need. I have for a long time. And uh, but I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is one time where I failed to put myself in somebody else's shoes. I was always talking, taught to walk in somebody else's moccasins, you know, from my Native American heritage, right. the Cherokee down in South, South Carolina. Yeah. So, you know, walk in somebody's walk a mile in somebody's moccasins to try to understand what their point of view is. And that's, you know, that's one of the, another thing that I was taught when I, when I, when I grew up to try to understand somebody else's point of view. And, and that's why it kind of hit me when you mentioned um, about this, the, the slave master's point of view, how do you, how does somebody get derive pleasure from, from beating a human being? Yeah. And I, that's one thing I I hadn't thought about that. And uh, it makes me even more angry at that person. <laughs> yeah. how, do get, how do you get joy about from doing that? How? How? how I mean, it, if I if I step on somebody's foot, I feel badly yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that if I like if uh, accidentally elbow somebody or something. No, no, no. Yeah. I was I was gonna say like you know there's times where it's like say you might be walking out of a out of a place and you don't know that somebody's behind you and it's like you know you just walk out the door. 
And, you know, I'm always one of those type of people where it's like if somebody's behind me, I always hold the door for them. But, like, if somebody's behind me and the door closes on them, I always apologize and let them know, like, hey, I didn't know you were behind me because I feel bad because it's like nobody wants to have the door shut in their face, you know? Right, right. When you think about that, and that's a wonderful point of view, when you think about that, the way on the other end of the continuum, somebody who gets joy at whipping somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, I mean, in front even, of their in front of their relatives and loved ones and friends. You know, it's just not just a physical <clears throat> pain, but the humiliation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. taking it even as far as the rape situation, I can't even imagine being able to be aroused. Yeah, doing yeah. That. the you know what I the mean. The problem, the problem with a lot of these situations, anything negative, anything positive, it goes back to what you're shown as a child, really. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were beat. <laughs> You know, the more likelihood of you going out and doing the same thing and when you're faced with adversity (laughs) is one of those things, you know, even, you know, unfortunately, rape, uh, all of it, really. And I think it comes down to if we teach less of that to our children moving forward, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, you it's it's the only way to really combat it. You know, it should be left up to teacher authority figures when you get there. You know, it has to start at the beginning. In the, in the in the home, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yep. That's uh, that's the thing, and and I, as I say, I'm sad to say that so many, and a lot of that comes from the Bible, unfortunately. You know, spare mm-hmm. the rod, spoil the tri- child. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I grew up in a Baptist household, but as I say, my parents broke that. You know, they said the heck with that business. You know, I'm not gonna be be beating my kids, especially my son, so he he's gonna want to hit somebody. Uh, to, to solve a problem. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and when I wanted to hit somebody, it was on a football field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yep, leave it out there on the field. I'm I'm the same way. Like, I'm a professional wrestler, so it's like, you know, whenever I'm angry, I just take it all out in the ring. Like, if I want to slap somebody in the face, I'm going to slap them in the face. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> so I, I get where you're coming from where he's like, you know, if you're angry about something, I'm going to take it out in the football field. But people um, sign up for that, you know, boxing, football, any sort of athletic. People sign up to do that. So exactly, yeah. it's and like you know, some of the cops do too, right? You know? uh, yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, something I wanted to bring up is because you were in Halloween H two O. Now, have you always been, not have you? But were you into horror movies coming up? And like, how did it feel? You know, being a part of like the legendary Halloween franchise. Oh, that was awesome. I mean, it's it's like uh you know, you join a you join a franchise like that and you're part of that family. It's like uh when I uh, did uh Star Trek into Darkness with JJ Abrams, yeah. you know. Um he's like, "I'm in the Star Trek family." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> but you know, as a kid, you know, the, there weren't a lot of horror movies for, for me back in the day and they weren't gory at all. Mm-mm. Yeah. You know, there'd be the mummy and I mean, there weren't really Frankenstein. Invisible mm-hmm. man. Yeah. yeah. Th- those are kind of like soft core, like the blob is kind of soft. Right. Core, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Same. They, mm-hmm. You know, it's, I don't know if you know that story about the blob, but um, it stayed in the theater. They pulled it out of the theaters after like two weeks. The original mm-hmm. or the one you did in the yeah, 80s? No, ours. ours. Okay. Not, yeah. Not the original. Our, our, our replay, the remake of it with Kevin yeah. Dillon. Um, but yeah, they pulled it out of theaters because I guess people they were used to uh, Friday, you know, they, 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 
the uh, all the gore of the of the horror movies. Slashers. And, right. and ours didn't have didn't really have a bunch of right. gore. Mm-hmm. And um and so um and that's the irony of that. It's become a it's become a cult classic now. Yep. But when it was first in the theaters, people go, eh, what's this? You know <laughs> <laughs> there's no horror here. <laughs> but yeah, I um uh, I, I didn't have I did I never had I remember watching the original Star Trek, I think like 68, 69. And, but that was, that wasn't really horror. That was sci-fi. Right. So, uh, when the horror movies came in, uh, Friday the 13th and, you know, all of that stuff, I never really had a, had a thought about it. It was, it was basically like, I'd love to do that because it would be a gig. Right. But it wasn't like some type of emotional need that I had. But, um, but then when I did the blob, I said, this is this is just fun. First of all, yeah. you know, when you're doing a horror movie, you're usually working nights instead of days. So mm. that was a whole around it. You know, we'd have a, um, like a five thirty, six o'clock call in the evening and work all night and then try to get some sleep during the day and then go back and work all night. Um when it was something I didn't realize, you know, because we went to Louisiana <clears throat> to do it. And I was thinking we were in Abbeville. Which yeah. is uh, in in uh, Cajun country. Uh, I got to tell you a quick story. Now, when we were there, they this guy owned this Western store, and he had a discount for everybody from uh, from the, from the film company. So myself, Art Lafleur, and I we went in looking around. It was a Western store, and we're looking around. And so the owner comes up and says, uh, "Y'all from the y'all from the movie company?" Uh, said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. Too. Uh, and, he, he, and he said, you know, he's talking a little small talk, and he said, y'all have an alligator? And, and I said, excuse me? <laughs> I couldn't understand what he was saying. He said, have you ever had gator? You know, alligator. Alligator. Said, oh, oh, no, never ate that. He said, oh, it's good to eat, you know. He said, a friend of mine had a barbecue the other day. He had a whole side of gator. He put onion <laughs> on it, pepper, cayenne pepper. Mm, mm, mm. Could have ate 50 pounds of it. And <laughs> And Art and I were looking at each other and said, I love this guy. <laughs> I love this guy. And to this day, he is the basis of, of uh, a Cajun accent. Whenever I do, I have, I have to come up with a Cajun accent. He's, I, I, I hear him in my mind, and, and I get in and I start thumping my knees and talking like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, like, that's that's a question right there, like, with you just bringing him up as, you know, your Cajun accent, like what are some of the other, you know, whether it be characters like from Looney Tunes or anything like that, or uh, characters on sitcoms, like who were some of the people that inspired you uh, to, you know, use their voice when it came to doing voice <laughs> work? Um, I don't know that I have, have an ex- actual person who ins- inspired me. When I was a kid, for some reason, I used to do a British accent. And to the point where I, I, think, I think my mother said, I'm so, just stop that. <laughs> just, 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 just stop that. Because I remember I, I used to, I, I'd pick up the phone. I'd pick up the phone and, and say, hello, how are you? What are you doing? And, and, my mother, my, and, and I didn't have much of a dialogue there and much right. of a basis for improv. So I would be saying the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. Hello, how are you? <laughs> just stop it. Go someplace else and do that. <laughs> but I, I've, um, and I guess I did the, let's see, my, probably my first performance was when I was in fifth or sixth grade. I did a hambone. 
Um, you you know the ham bone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That that stuff. I did the ham bone uh, in front of in the talent show, and I see, and I sang Silent Night in the uh, Christmas play off stage, um, but uh, for some reason I had a little bit of a performing urge in me. You know, it wasn't big. I remember my my uh, sixth grade teacher uh, identified my singing voice, and so she sent me around to the other classes singing um, Loch Lomond. You know that, that the Scottish song? Yeah. Uh, by yon bonny banks and by yon bonny breeze. But anyway, um, so that was a little performing that, 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 I, that I did. But yeah, for some reason I was captivated by the British accent. And, um, and so, and then I used to fool around when my wife was working. She was working in her office. And I would call and use these different voices. <laughs> and she she finally she said, "You got that? The office thinks I'm the office slut because <laughs> all of these different guys are calling these different accents, asking for asking for me." She said, "So you got to stop it." And I got busted too once. I was doing a French accent, and and then the, and, but I don't speak French, and so um, she started talking to me in French. <laughs> <laughs> so Uh-oh. luckily my mind worked quickly and, and what I did is it uh, excuse me um, why I am in your country I am never speaking French uh-huh. and I am never understanding French while I'm here so you must speak to me in English because I will not respond to you in French and she's oh okay okay and I got away with it and I said she said yeah you got busted you need you need to just stop that you know i said okay maybe i'll i'll calm myself down because that was that was kind of embarrassing when she said when she started spoke when she started speaking in french my my whole body just froze you know i said oh no (laughs) i'm busted i'm busted i'm a fraud i'm a fraud that was kind of the way i felt in my career when i first started because you know i when I went to New York to start my acting career, I had only done one play, and, and, and Emperor Jones, and so I had no training in it at all. But I, you know, I said acting, how hard can it be? And all I'm right. I'm Bo Billingsley, so I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't do anything. That's I don't, right. Yeah, right. And uh, but as time went on, I started I started feeling like I'm get I, I think I'm going to get exposed here. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm getting exposed as a fraud. I've been <laughs> and. Uh, so my voice teacher uh, actually sent me to uh, to study the classics. He said you need to study Shakespeare, Moliere, and everything. Um, but but the the, the the film technique, you know, acting on on stage is is totally easy compared to doing film work because film work. Uh, I don't know. You guys are probably aware, but uh, as I tell my cousins, who say, "Get me in the show business, man." It's not, and I say, "It's not as easy as it looks." Not as easy. Yeah. And I, I, you know, all professionals make everything look easy. The tennis yeah. players, the golfers, the basketball players—they make yeah. it look easy. And then you try to do it, and you say, "Damn." Yeah. This mm-hmm. is hard, right? Oh. So I explain to them and say, "You know, when you're doing, when we're doing a scene, we you shoot it like this, like we're doing a master. Let's say we're having a, a, a we're having dinner, and we're going to shoot the scene." And so they'll have the camera a distance away and we'll run through the whole scene and then we'll come in and they'll come in and do close-ups. Everybody's close-up. And so when you're doing the master, you know, let's say when you're eating and you're at dinner, there's a lot of business. You're drinking, 
you're uh, taking a bite, you're passing this, and you're doing all of these things. Well, as the actor, you have to remember what you did and when you did it. Right. Now, think about that. You have to remember what you did and when you did it. When you took a sip, you know, if you're wearing glasses, when you took your glasses off, when you put them back in, back on, all during the dialogue. So that when it comes time for your close-up, they can cut back and forth and, it, and it'll match, right? And if you don't remember everything you did and when you did it, you lose your close-up. And what that means is if I, if I don't remember what I did and when I did it, well, during my close-up, they'll put the camera on somebody else listening to me. Right. Instead of on me talking. Hmm. That's the consequence of not knowing, monitoring yourself, knowing when you, you know, when you, when you go like this in the scene. Just some yeah. little thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was doing American President, and Michael Douglas had done this, uh, done the master, and they were moving in for a close-up, and he had run his hand through his hair. But he didn't remember which hand. Yeah. And so he asked to see him being the star of the movie. Right. The script supervisor in continuity, they had a note in there. And so when he asked, which hand did I use when I ran through my hair? And she said, oh, oh, left hand. He said, OK, thanks. But Bo Billingsley, <laughs> you know, if I had asked that question, they'd say, First of all, I have no business running my hand through my hair because I haven't gotten any. You know? but, <laughs> but, but that aside, uh, uh, you know, the, the answer would be, "Don't you know?" Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not a megastar of a movie. But but that can be a real nightmare. I remember I did this show with Tony Danza, um, his second show, and I did "Who's the Boss" with him with Ray Charles. I don't know if you guys know that, but um, that's crazy. The, um, mm. uh, I was doing a judge. I did like seven or eight episodes of a show he called, uh, it was called Family Law. He played a yeah. lawyer. I was a judge. Right. And uh, I was wearing glasses because I wear contact lenses or glasses. And I was wearing glasses. And so the director, first off, the director came up and he says, okay, the glasses either stay on or stay off. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because right. apparently he'd had experience with, you know, the judge wants to take his glasses off and and be very erudite and very intellectual and blah, 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 and put him back on. But he'd yeah. had experiences with the actors not remembering when they did it. So he said, we're not, we're not going to, he says, I, I trust you know what you're doing. He says, but just to make my life simple, just leave your glasses on or don't wear them at all. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I totally got him. Right. You know, I totally yeah. got him because um, it, it can be a, a, an actor's nightmare. If you don't remember what you did when you did it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and when I, I told this story to my cousin, he said, wow, I had no idea. I said, I know, I know. I didn't either until I, <laughs> until I got in a situation where I was, I was stuck and, um, and didn't remember what I, you know, what I did and when I did it. Mm -hmm. And it was also embarrassing. Right. I mean, aside mm -hmm. from losing my close-up, I don't remember what the show Aside from losing my close-up, it was also embarrassing because, you know, the director said, no, we can't. Oh, no. All right. We're going to have to. OK, we're going to have to make an adjustment. And the adjustment was I lost my close up. But that never uh, that only happened once. <laughs> I said, no, this is, oh. I learned my lesson. That's all it took. I mean, mm -hmm. losing, losing my close up here, you know. So anyway, the little the, the little ins and outs of of uh, a show business that people don't you know don't know about that are is very important in our lives. You know, people just think about hitting your mark and, and saying your lines. But. There's a yeah. lot more to it than a lot more to it than that.
I remember I was doing this movie Night Shift. Do you guys aware of that Night Shift with Henry Winkler? It was it was um, Michael Keaton's first movie, and it was a comedy. And we did it in I think 80, 80 81. Hmm. And we uh, and right at the end of the movie, there's a gunfight. Yeah, and because I I play a cop, and they had this they had this shot set up where I had to I had to hit a square in space, uh, because they because the camera now they set the focus focus puller would set the focus of me when I hit this square in space. And so I was over here and I had to, you know, we're doing the shooting and shooting and ducking and shooting and coming up and trying to hit this square in space. And uh, I remember, I remember when I was, Ronnie, Ronnie Howard was the director. Yeah. I remember Ronnie told me, told me I had to do that. I mean, we need you to hit this square in the space. So, um, and I had developed my own techniques for how to hit my mark and everything, but it's on the floor, not in the middle of space. Right? So um, I remember what I did. You know, I, I I walked backwards. You know, that's one of the things. And, and um, I walked walked backwards and counted my steps, and then so that I would know when I went forward how many steps to get to that square in space where I can put my head so I would be in focus because there's no sense doing a great shot. A great scene if you don't hit your mark right and you're not in focus you know so it's 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 all for no, it's all for nothing and as, again that's that's basic for an actor so if you get busted for not hitting your mark it's like we got an amateur here you know it's like, mm-hmm. this guy who, who who is this guy you got to hit your mark you know i mean there are two things you got to know your lines and hit your mark those, yeah. i mean those are two bottom lines but um but I, I was thinking about, and you know, and I did it, and it was and it was fine because I had honed my. By that time, I had honed my technique for for being very sparse with my with my props, and 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 with doing this being simple, as they say in showbiz, less is more. Less yeah, is that's more. true. That's yeah, true. Especially if you with your uh, facial expressions, if you're doing a movie, you know, it's got to be very very slight because. If you're on a you're on a giant jumbo screen, and it's just your face, you know big movements are just horrible for the audience. Right, it's shocking to the audience. So you gotta you gotta know what level works. You know, it's, you, you, you can't. What works on stage is very often not going to work on film. Yeah, you know, and, uh, and of course mm. going back to the voice world, you have you have to. Yeah, you, you don't have your own body, but you have the body of the character, the animation, uh, and 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 their their face. But your basic work is, you know, to deliver the emotion, the appropriate emotion at the at the moment, just just with your voice. And the exactly. other thing is, a lot of people don't realize that, even though you know, when we're doing voiceover, we're, we're reading. Uh, there's a lot of times where we have to memorize ch- chunks of dialogue because what we're doing is what they call chasing the scene. Yeah, the engineer will give you the beeps. Once you start, then you just chase the scene as you're watching it, especially with the fights. Right. You know, with the battles, you're watching it and, 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 and doing your voice work based on that. And so looking down at your script, it can be a real problem for you. Right. So what you're trying to do is memorize chunks of dialogue so that you can look at the look at the video and not be looking down at at your script. So yeah. 
Yeah, that's a little something a lot of people, if you don't do voice work, you don't understand that that's memorization is also a bit of a, a bit of part of our work as uh, as voice actors. Mm. Yeah, because you don't think about that. You just think that they don't need to memorize it because you don't physically see them. Exactly. Right. But yeah. We do. So, uh, yeah. In motion capture. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, last question and then we can go ahead and wrap this thing up. Um, what do you enjoy doing more, voice acting work or acting on the screen? Well, you know, it's kind of like apples and oranges. I enjoy both. One of the things about uh, um, live action is that you're you, you just it's a whole community. Right. Yeah. You, know, you might have like uh, with American president, there was a, probably about 100 people on the set. You know, everybody having their different functions. And it's a. Uh, but when you're doing anime, I'm going in. I'm the only person in the booth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm dealing with the director. And especially nowadays, if you're doing it from home or you're, I mean, I did a, a video game, uh, two video games last week. There, one director was in Australia. The other director was in Amsterdam. Yeah. And, but, you know, when you're working on camera, there's a whole, you know, you're all having, you're having lunch together. Um, you're sitting around chatting and, you know, you're, you're experiencing, uh, you're having a life experience with people. As we say, once we've worked with somebody, now we're part of each other's history. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, and like I remember I did the show Murphy Brown and Adam West was uh, was guesting that week with me. Right. Remember, he was the original Batman yep. on TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we just clicked right away from the first day. So every day we had lunch together. Wow. And he would tell me stories about his experience doing Batman and Talking about how great it was because it, once it got to be a classic, everybody wanted all of the wonderful actors in Hollywood wanted to be on it. Yeah, and so and so he said he got a chance to work with some wonderful actors, and he said, uh, and he, he he first was concerned about how he looked in tights. Right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's an aspect of uh, that's an aspect of on camera that is much different from doing voiceover. So I mi- I miss that. I mean, yeah. I just mm-hmm. I just miss that the craft services, you know, when you go get a snack and, and having lunch and having dinner and, you know, working these long hours and, you know, people putting makeup on you and wardrobe fixing your wardrobe. And it's a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful life experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I did on Nickelodeon called Just Jordan. I don't know if you all remember. Oh, that. yeah. I remember that show. Oh, you, yeah. you, you, you probably don't know that I was on it. <laughs> yeah, I, you, were, you were you were Jordan's grandfather up there, correct? Yes, I was. I was no. Papa Grant. Yeah, yeah, I was Papa Grant. But the beautiful thing about that was that my granddaughter, my oldest one, uh, she was a little girl at the time, and she pl- did extra work on it. Oh, nice. And so, yeah, and if you can work with your family, especially your grandbaby, right. it, it's just like, oh, and she would run around the sound say she was Queen B, right, because of me. And, <laughs> uh, and I remember the, the last episode of the first season, the writers wrote this beautiful um, food fight. And, you know, because I ran a diner. So they yeah. wrote this beautiful food fight. And luckily, my granddaughter was working that day. That The first year, we were not um, multiple cameras. So we, we did scene by scene. We didn't have a, a, um, a filming night. The second season, we had a filming night on Friday nights. But so anyway, and one of the adults didn't show up. So my daughter was on the show, too. That was oh, nice. right. She, wow. Yeah. And so we're in the diner and we're having this we're having this food fight. And 
you know, cake, smushing cake on my face and pouring Kool-Aid on my head. And my granddaughter looked at my daughter and said, Mommy, this is so much fun. And she grabbed a handful of cake and then just smushed it into my face. <laughs> and poured Kool-Aid on my head. And, and see, those, those experiences, yeah. I mean, you can't, they're, they're, they're priceless. They're, yeah. they're, they're priceless. And I still have the photos I look at every now and then of, uh, of you know, because we did a lot of, a lot, took a lot of photos after the food fight because everybody was just a mess, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so from that standpoint, um, on camera is is just fabulous, and and stage stage is fabulous because you're getting the immediate response, a live response from people, right? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's that's absolutely wonderful. Um, voiceover has its has its special qualities too. So um, I wouldn't say I, I enjoy one more than the other, but they're they're just different. Yeah. You can exp- you can understand how the on camera experience is such a a full um, uh, life expanding uh, event. So that you uh, because you're interacting with a lot of people because you know yeah. life's about people, right? Right. So yeah. that that is uh, that's the, the 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 big difference of the experience. As I explained, the difference between the work, but with the life experience. Um, you know, just, you know, giving people hugs, you know, and yeah. you're seeing the same people in some of these shows like NCIS has been on, I don't know, what, 12 years or yep. something. I mean, that's that's a family. You know, yeah. you, you, you develop, I mean, it's, it's like your other family. Seinfeld was nine years. Our show was just two years, but it, we still we still felt that way. And I'm right. still in touch with people. I was about to uh-huh. say, do you talk just, to little J.J.? Pardon? I said I was about to say oh, you talked about no, no. JJ. I'm not, I'm not in touch with JJ. I don't know what happened with JJ's career, to tell you the truth. Uh, he was I, uh, on he was on Wild and Out until you know yeah, recently so, where it got canceled or oh. they fired Nick Cannon or whatever, whatever that controversy I think, was. I think mm. I had watched a video where they was talking about like you know he wanted to focus on school and whatnot, and he wanted to focus on other things in his life because. It's just like, you know, you know, you get older, especially when you're a child star, because he was on uh, oh, BET Comp. I can't remember what the show was. That That's how everybody found out about him. And then mm-hmm. when he was on Just Jordan, uh, you know, I, I figured like after that show, like he was going to blow up. But it's like, you know, sometimes like that's what happens where it's just like you just don't know what's going to happen after. Then, you know, if you don't blow up in your career, whether it be comedy or acting, it's like you like how you were saying earlier, bro, like, you know, Sometimes you got to go back to the real world and you got to work a normal job and, you know, go to school and hopefully, you know, something opens up. And I know he was on Wild and Out. So he was still he was still on TV. It's just that he wasn't that he stopped being as big as he used to be. Right. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you never know how how or why a career goes as it goes, right. you know, and uh, you just wish the, the best for people. <laughs> Justin John. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he's, he's, his career is taking a slightly different path, but it was funny. Justin Chan, hey, I think he was like 26 years old playing a, playing a 16 year old. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember and J- Justin came up to me like one of the first days he said, I want to learn everything I can from you. Oh, nice. It was, yeah, it was really, really refreshing. Cause the other kids, they kind of, you know how kids I can be, but right, he wasn't yeah. a kid. He was an adult. They make fun of me. I remember. People just were starting to, they were texting and making jokes about me when I was standing right there. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of weird. 
But Justin yeah. was great. He came in. I want to learn everything I can from you. And he did. He would ask questions. And that's one of the ways I grew up. My, my parents taught me that if you if you ask questions and listen, mm-hmm. you will never be uncomfortable any place in your life. If you that's go true. to a party, you don't know a soul. Ask questions and listen. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a comfort that 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 you have. And I taught my kids and, of course, my, my son's an attorney. So that's what he did. <laughs> questions and listens yeah you know, my daughter's a cpa but uh she works with numbers but um yeah that that experience was um was a lot of fun i'm i'm, I'm it's, it's so so sad that our show was canceled uh and it was canceled because of politics because we had mm. good ratings four sevens four eights and um but they had this show uh i carly that was coming on yeah yeah and they fell in love with that and they didn't I don't know what it was. I hate to go the racial route, but I don't know. You know, it was it was a, it was a multiracial show. Our, our show was right. Yeah. J- JJ's friends was Hispanic friend, uh, Asian friend, yep. and you know it was it was cool. And um, and I got a, I got a lot of response from people. They were saying from adults saying that that was one of the few shows on TV that they could sit down and watch with their child and enjoy it. Right. I agree because of the way they they wrote the storylines. And with me, I would be doing capers saying, don't tell your mom, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yes. and that, yes. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was I was just saying that um, we we had a we had a nice we had a nice family there with with just Jordan. And it was very, very sad and surprising that uh, the show was canceled. I remember when they called me to say that I thought they were calling me. Casting was calling me to tell me when we were going to start back for our third season. It was on a Friday. I'll never forget it. And they're saying, actually, I don't have any good news, Bo. The show's been canceled. And I'm saying, what? We had great ratings. It was a great show. I mean, the, with the gimmick of him saying freeze and popping out of the frame and, yeah. and, and talking to camera and, and uh, you know, little life lessons for kids. And and uh, but it was because of because of politics. I found out late. I'm not going to go into the details, yeah. but um, it, it was it was it was sad. And they never, they never really got totally behind our show. You know, usually when you have a show like that, they'll send me or the kids someplace to like to open a mall in Milwaukee. Right. You know, they send the kids on on, on publicity junkets. They didn't send ours, our kids any place or me. They didn't hmm. send us any place. It was almost like, I don't know, what are they doing? Are we a tax write-off? That's yeah. what I was thinking. Right. <laughs> well, why, you know, what's going on? They're not totally behind our show. But um you know, it's history. And the other thing is, there you can't find just Jordan anyplace. Yeah, you can. Yeah, mm. it, right. it's, it's it's crazy. It's, it's 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 crazy. You know, I did a two of our writers, our two writers from their first season, went on to write for Wizards of Waverly Place. Right. Yeah, I okay. knew that you made a guest appearance on there. Yeah, I did. I made a guest appearance on that, and just as as a favor to them, and uh, and I'm still getting residuals from that. Right. But. Just Jordan, they pulled it, and it's just been someplace on a shelf in the halls of Nickelodeon, and yeah. I, I don't get that either. Nickelodeon yeah. does that for a lot of their shows, unfortunately. Yeah, is that what it, they do? It's, it's hard. Viacom's a weird company, man. It's like they yeah. don't mm-hmm. want to make money off of the stuff that they spent money on. It, they're weird. They're, yeah. they're very weird. Well, I know Wizards of Waverly Place is showing. I mean, I get I get residuals from all over the world on that. Oh, Disney hmm. will milk everything for what it's worth. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, well, smart. You know, I mean, right? Yeah, as yeah. You said, they spent money creating the product project. Well, why not? Why continue not? to make money on it? Yeah. 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 
But I mean, as I say, I don't want to go the race card because I don't know what's going on. But, you know, it's a black show that seems like Nickelodeon just um, just, you know, it canceled it and buried it. Well, if you notice yeah. that a lot of Nickelodeon like, black shows are like that. Cousin Skeeter, Alan say. Strange, Just Jordan, a lot of black shows Keenan got buried. And Kale. Yeah. And Kale. I was going to say, like, mostly shows that involve families. I mean, like, even when it's uh, not a black family, like, uh, I think it was like the the brothers Garcia. The brothers Garcia, like, I don't, yeah. I don't think that that lasted for a long, long time either. It seems like the shows where they're, they're not centered around family and you know family lessons and stuff like that, they don't last long on Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. Like iCarly, like iCarly, like that lasted for years. And uh, yeah, I think that I was spent on a long time. And the same thing with uh, I think Victorious as well. Yeah, they no, both got the spinoff to Sam and Cat too. Yeah. So yeah, Victorious didn't last long, you know. Not very Victorious was around for a minute. I think it only had three seasons. I I don't know. I I just yeah. remember like it, like Victorious was on a lot longer than just Jordan. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, yeah, that. we can. Yeah. yeah, we can agree on that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's weird because when Disney comes out with stuff, it's like if you're with Disney, man, that stuff never dies. Yeah, like, look for at real. Some of the stuff they just announced like um, reboots and remakes, and you know, bringing people back. You know, mm-hmm. it's they reuse their cast. So yeah, I don't they know. just did it the might High School be, Musical holiday special. It, exactly. Then we got uh, the Mighty Ducks is coming back and yeah. things of that nature. It's just weird how they reuse or find ways to to bring their families back. You know, mm-hmm. and it, look at it that way. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, might just be Nickelodeon, guys. Yeah. Well, it's, well uh, it seems like you know. It seems like it is. I've worked for Disney a few times. I did that Miley Cyrus movie. I yeah, don't know I if you guys that. ever saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you remember the ferret dance? What were you, the mayor? Yeah, yeah. it was the mayor. Yeah. <laughs> remember the ferret dance where the ferret went up my leg? Yeah. <laughs> and I had the lobster, they had the lobster bibs with my head on the lobster. Yeah. <laughs> my my wife was pretty excited to find out that I was having the mayor from the uh, Hannah Montana movie up here. <laughs> oh, is that right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, said, I, said, I said hello and she has I, great I taste. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's it's it's just awesome that it's like, you know, no matter what it is that you've done, Mr. Billingsley, like whether it's anime, like acting on a sitcom, it's like, you know, you have fans all over the world and all of the projects that you've done. And I just want to say, you know, thank you again for joining us today on the two year anniversary episode of Leveling Up with Benjamin Banks. And before we let you go, can you tell everybody on social media land where they can find you at? Well, I'm on Twitter, on on um Facebook on Instagram is Bo Billingsley. And uh, I love to, love to chat with you. Whenever my fans reach out to me, I try to reach back. Sometimes it might take some time, like with you guys. Sometimes yeah, it might hey, take I some time. The DMs. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I appreciate it, man. I, I appreciate you do getting back with us, man. We, re- we really appreciate this. We appreciate it yeah. here yeah. at Leveling Up. Well, I appreciate you guys. Um, it, it, it warms my heart. To, to be able to, to to sit and chat with you and to share my my stories and to hear your stories. And as I say, life's about people, right? So um, now we're part of each other's history. Yep. That's true. They're part of leveling up with Benjamin Banks' family now. So that's yes. awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah, crazy. We appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, you know, again, thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you have a good day. Thank you, and the same to you all. Thank you. Stay Stay safe. Yes, sir. 
What an amazing guest that we had on today's episode. Like all of the stories that Mr. Billingsley told us, you know, I know normally it's like, you know, like I said on the episode, we stick to the anime and, you know, nerd topics, but it's like, he just has so many wonderful and interesting stories and yeah, life stories. Nothing but knowledge. Absolute yeah. knowledge, bro. I'm going to yes. enjoy. Me personally, I will be listening to this one back. It was phenomenal content. Check us out. Yeah, I'd say like for, you know, our two year anniversary episode, this was a good way to, you know, start off the year. And mm-hmm. it was a good way to, you know, start our two year anniversary. Right, Trav? Exactly. To start our two year anniversary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So with that being said, D, tell everybody in social media land where they can find you at. Gonna be rebelliousd23 at instagram.com. And you know where Trav. you can find your boy, Trav, the, the trash man. Not the destroyer. That's right. <laughs> find your boy on Instagram at ZK Audio. And uh, where can they find the hero, Benjamin Banks? That's right. You can find me, your hero, Benjamin Banks, at KingBenji underscore Banks on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook by typing in Benjamin Banks, and I should be the first person that pops up. If not, then I'll contact Mr. Zuckerberg. And make sure that you follow all of the Leveling Up with Benjamin Banks social media accounts at Leveling Up Banks. And if you would like to donate something to our Patreon, just type in at Leveling Up Banks. That's right. Thank you for joining us on today's two-year anniversary episode. Uh, We hope to keep it going and keep on bringing you some top-tier guests and, uh, you know, make it to three years. So with that said... See you later, Space Cowboy.